several years ago, uh, a name was uh, not very commonly known name, uh, but of course all of you will know now. Uh, a man named Barack Obama wrote a book in 1995, and he wrote a book called Dreams from My Father. What was notable about that book is uh, very few people, I think, read it in 1995, but it was reissued in 2002 because he started to gain national prominence. But many people read it, and what was interesting about it was reviewers said it's much different than most political memoirs. Uh, Winston Churchill once said that you, don't, uh, you should never toss aside a political memoir lightly. Instead, you should thrust it away with the greatest possible force. <laughs> what he meant by that was that oftentimes these are shallow and they're self-serving, but this was something different. In fact, it was not really about politics at all, but many people noted that it was a really interesting uh, reflection on race in America. Because, of course, Barack Obama is a mixed race. His father is black and his mother is white. But what I found most interesting in the way that people spoke about that book was the way that this was actually a book not simply about race relations in the United States, but was deeply personal reflection about his complicated relationship with his father. It's called Dreams from My Father because at the age of two years old, his father left their family and he didn't see him for many years. All he had to go on about his father were what his family told him about his father. And so he had dreams and expectations about what his father would like and would be like and what it would be like to finally meet him. And at the age of nine, he finally does and finds it's a disappointment. Never sees him again. And a few years later, his father dies in a car accident. All he's left were are dreams of his father, but without the reality. Now, I mention that not simply because it's a book that I think is worth reading and checking out. I mention that because it tells the tale that many uh, children experience with fathers who are absent. You have a man who is the father and is a father by virtue of the gift that they are given, a gift from God, the gift of a child that makes you a father. But sadly, some fathers, just as there are some mothers, simply refuse or are unable to embrace that role, to live out the implications of what it means to be a father, and for that reason, rob that gift of all the grace and the power and the love and the joy that should come with it. It's entirely possible to receive the gift of fatherhood, but to reject that gift and find yourself, instead of enjoying the gift, find it a burden. Now, I mention that particularly because today in our lesson from Ephesians, as we're walking through the book of Ephesians this summer, it tells the story not of a father and son. Instead, it tells the story of a gift that God gives to us, but also tells us the warning that it's very easy and possible for us to reject that gift and to rob it of all its power and strength. As I told you a few weeks ago, looking at Ephesians chapter 2, we are told that the church is a gift that comes from the hand of Christ. It is a gift that is won for us uh, by his power, by his work, by his grace. And that unity of the church uh, we learned about in chapter 2, about how Jews and Gentiles who had no logical reason to enjoy each other's company whatsoever are not just people who tolerated each other, but by Christ's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit became people who considered each other brothers and sisters. This is a gift from God, but as Paul tells us here in chapter 4, there are implications that come from it. And if you don't start acting like there's true unity amongst you as a congregation, there is the real danger that you will not experience the grace and the joy and the power that comes from being part of God's family. So I'd like to speak to you today about those two elements, about the giftedness of our unity in Christ as a church, but also the challenge that Christ throws down for us and how it is we are to respond to ensure that that gift of church unity is not robbed of its power and of its grace. 
Now, why do I mention that this is something that's a gift that Christ gives us? Well, if you remember back a couple of weeks to chapter 2, uh, chapter 4 is really a sort of a, a following where Paul left off in chapter 2. Last week we looked at chapter 3 and Paul was talking about his particular role in bringing Gentiles in, but that's almost a sort of a, a diversion or a sort of an aside or parenthesis. Chapter 4 picks up on what chapter 2 said. And what did chapter 2 say? To get a picture of the giftedness of church unity, listen to some of the ways that Paul speaks. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one. Verse 15, He has abolished the law with its commandments, so that he might create in himself one new humanity. Verse 17, So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Verse 18, For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 21, in him the whole structure is joined together. Verse 22, in whom you also are built together spiritually. You notice a theme? If you listen to that and listen carefully, who is the mover and shaker in all this business? It's Jesus. He's saying, you have unity here. You are sitting with people you would not normally sit with because of the power of what Christ has done. And he continues that same theme in chapter 4. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, somebody called you, to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all in all. And then, interestingly enough, he goes to start talking about the ascension. And why is he doing that? He talks about how Christ ascended on high, made captivity captive, gave gifts to his people. What is he referring to? Think about what happens around the ascension. Jesus says, wait here until you are clothed with power from on high. He ascends, and what happens? It's not that the disciples get together and say, okay, we need to have a five-year strategic plan to reach the Roman Empire. No. It doesn't say, well, you know, we really need to learn lots of different languages to make sure we meet uh, the Gentiles in different people groups. No. All they do is they get in the upper room and they pray, and what happens? The ascended Christ does what he says. He pours out the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes with a great sound of a rushing wind, and the Flames of fire fall upon the disciples. They go out and they speak their normal language, not having learned anything. And, the, and the, the, the many pilgrims coming from all over the known world gather in Jerusalem. They hear the gospel being preached and they come to faith. The church, its very birth, its very existence is owed to the power of Christ working. This is a gift that Paul says happened when the church was created. And it is the same spirit of Christ that continues to allow the unity of the church that you experience today. Now, I've gone on and drummed onto this because Paul, of course, drums in this and says it again and again and again, but it's particularly important to understand that the church is a gift for lots of reasons. I mean, one of them is, is that it makes us understand that, that when we look at brothers and sisters in Christ who are quite different than us, no matter how much we might want to say, well, I don't want much to do with you, we don't really have that option. But what Christ has done in bringing Gentiles and Jews together and uniting us with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, it means that it is a continuing, ongoing scandal that we don't have communion fellowship with Pentecostals or with Roman Catholics or with Greek Orthodox Christians. Many of the things that they believe in and many of the things, of course, that they, they, they do in their everyday life, I could say, well, I'm not so sure about all of that business. 
fact is they're members of the family by virtue of what Christ has done. It puts on us an understanding that we must look at other Christians at brothers as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, not because of what we hold in common in terms of what we do or say, but what we hold in common with one Lord and one faith and one baptism. It's also something that should remind us of the duty we have to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world of different nationalities and ethnicities. I've often spoken and we usually put a focus during the Lenten season on the persecuted church around the world. Today, how easily forgotten it is that Christians today in China, for example, uh, Christianity is growing in leaps and bounds by all accounts. There's a huge underground, uh, uh, or underground church movement. Uh, many times the, the government will cooperate and then change its mind and decide it'll clamp down. Just a few years ago, I heard about one of the biggest churches in the world was built in China, and they received all the right building permits, and then somebody at the top decided, actually, I don't like this church, and so they just tore it down. Or the people that are imprisoned because of their belief in Christ. In Pakistan, we regularly hear, we heard sadly just a few years ago about a bombing at Easter time. We hear the Copts in Egypt and how uh, going to church on a Sunday, you're taking your life in your hands. What a sad reality that the church today in comfortable Western world, although sometimes it gets uncomfortable because of mean comments on Twitter, it is nothing compared to what people actually live with day to day around the world. Do we really take seriously that these are brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way I would take it seriously if somebody persecuted my family back in Vancouver? It's a challenge for us to see the giftedness that although I have very little, it seems, in common with a woman in Egypt worshiping God in a Coptic church, she is my sister in Christ just as much as my wife is. But I'd like to suggest that there's something more. That's very easy to say it changes our attitude, but I also think it highly uh, encourages us to look at church and our daily church life differently than the way the world wants us to look at the church. What I mean by that is, is that we live in a world here in the West, so much material abundance, so many choices, and that's so many ways that's a wonderful thing. I mean, you want to go to a, a restaurant, and, and as Tabi and I celebrated our anniversary this week, uh, we went out uh, for dinner, and so what do you do? Well, you look at Yelp reviews, and you go online and see what the menu is like, and what's the ambiance, what do people say, what's the price list? You make all of these things. I think that's compatible with what I want, and so you go. Of course, now I'm not knocking internet dating, but I've heard sadly stories about why we do that even now in relationships, this sort of consumer attitude. You may have heard of Tinder, for example. I doubt any of you use it, I'm sure. Uh, but it's loosely called a dating app. It's more of a hookup app more than anything, where you put up information, pictures of yourself, and on your cell phone, if you're interested in meeting a person, you, you swipe. Uh, I don't like that person. That person's not tall enough. They're not attractive enough. That job doesn't do it for me. Click, 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 until I get a person who meets exactly the criteria I want. That's how we think we're happy. If I get everything I want and it meets my needs, sadly, that reality is often filtered through the way we approach church. There's that term, I'm church shopping. Now, there's godly discernment that needs to happen. You go to a, another town, you move somewhere, and you want to go to a church that feeds you. Or sometimes, of course, you get into a church environment in which uh, it's gone so astray because of dysfunction or, 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 or falseness, it may be necessary to leave a church. But sadly, so often the way that we evaluate a church's uh, uh, real value comes not uh, for the right reason. 
you think, well, do I like the music? And uh, does the person who speaks speaks with a certain charismatic flair to it? Are there enough jokes? Uh, did I uh, uh, go and enjoy the snacks at coffee hour? Check, check, check. All my preferences. It's not that those aren't important. I mean, music is really important in speaking to us. But you know what Paul says here about what Christ gives in the unity of the church? The real question to ask is, is Christ giving the gifts of unity to this church? Look at what he says about what Christ truly gives to the church that shows his presence. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers to equip the saints for the work in ministry. The question to ask yourself about whether this church, a church is a place that is really a valuable church doing God's will is to ask, is Christ really present here? You want to know whether it's a church you should be part of, ask yourself, is God providing teachers? Is he providing people who encourage you to share your faith? Is he providing pastors who visit, who care about your burdens and help bear those burdens with you? Is he providing prophets? And that's not simply people who tell the future. Is he providing people who help you interpret the times? How do I live in the times in which we live? That's what a prophet does. He sees what goes on or she sees what goes on in the world and says this is how we respond as Christians. It challenges us to ask if we really believe this business that the church, and particularly the unity of the church, is a gift of Christ, we live it by understanding, is Christ present and building up the church? And that's really the question we ask about whether a church is healthy, not whether it meets all my preferences. Now, I mentioned that Paul strongly emphasizes the giftedness of the church and the giftedness of unity, but I'd also say equally important is how Paul also says that there is a real danger of letting that gift go underutilized and for that reason rob ourselves of the grace that comes with it. Just as I mentioned in Barack Obama's example, it's possible to be a father but to turn your back on being a father such that you don't enjoy any of the gifts, I think St. Paul talks about that very much. Think about what you might think, this is a gift and so what do we do? We just uh, hear some campfire songs, let's gather around the campfire and sing Kumbaya and celebrate our unity, but Paul doesn't do that. He in fact begins this chapter with a very urgent appeal. He says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, I'm suffering for the cause of Christ by being a prisoner and this is what I tell you you need to do. I beg you, not here's my humble suggestion, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Embrace the reality of your church unity. Embrace the reality of who you are in Christ, and this is how you do it. He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says that by virtue of being part of the church, by virtue of being united with the people in this room, by the virtue of Christ's power, there are responsibilities that come with it to ensure that that power is not ignored and actually works through us. What does he ask us to do? I mean, some good general advice, don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder, have humility, be gentle with other people, patient with them. I mean, after all, you don't want me to be the kind of person who flips out every time anything goes wrong, and you also realize everyone's on a journey. You bear with them. Maybe they're not at the place of maturity you wish, but be humble enough to admit that you're probably not at the place of maturity the other person wishes either. It's part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. These are all general advice and things that are really important, but Paul doesn't just say, here's some rules in general advice. In fact, what I think Paul does is go a step further to say that there is a reason that we're working towards that unity. What we're wanting is not just unity, let's all get along. 
what we're working for is working for that sense that we continue to grow by helping each other become more and more like Christ. That's the heart of the unity. This is what he says in verse 16. He says, as each part, that is each part of the church, is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. Paul's saying every person in the church has a responsibility to build each other up so that we grow in love. Even more particularly, he says in verse 15, speaking in the truth and love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Truth, he says, is a highly important part of what it means to be a Christian. And truth, not just in the sense of dropping truth bombs that hurt other people, but truth in love with the goal of helping your brothers and sisters grow into the full stature of Christ and to become more and more like Christ. That's so deeply important to underline because I think it's entirely possible to say I'm humble, I don't cause troubles, this church doesn't have lots of big conflicts, but also to end up with a church that is highly shallow and doesn't allow serious issues to be addressed. I spoke uh, last week about how heartbreaking it was to hear of a new scandal that's erupted in the Roman Catholic Church in uh, the United States. A cardinal, a person who's one of the top people in the United States in leadership in the church, has been found out as a person who was a child molester and has been accused of sexually harassing seminarians. And what clearly happened is not just that a predator was there, but many people simply covered it up because they were afraid that it would look bad in the church's life. Highly dysfunctional and terrible, covered up by lies. And you look at that and you think, there's an example in which not telling the truth and not saying it because you want to build up the church destroys the church in the end. And I'm sure the church will continue to suffer because of that reputation. But there's a danger. You look at that and say, what a dysfunction. And you sort of think, well, we're not like that. But the reality of everyday church life can be that serious issues in, in, in maturity simply don't get addressed. Are you humble enough to let other people in the church help you become more like Christ? And do you love them enough to be able to speak the truth when something needs to be addressed? I know it's easy to simply ignore things for the sake of getting along, but how hard it is to actually say, I love you enough to risk some of our relationship to speak the truth to you. How many churches find themselves terrorized by bad behavior, terrorized by things that simply don't get addressed again and again and drive people away, and you end up with not a vibrant church full of the grace of God, but instead end up with a church that simply mimics the world and its angers and divisions. St. Augustine of Hippo once said famously, when he was confronted by people telling lies to protect the reputation of the church, he said very simply, God does not need your lies. God doesn't need us to pretend things are right when they aren't. He doesn't need us to look in the mirror and pretend everything is fine when they're not. He doesn't demand that we look at each other and say everything is fine when it's not. Instead, he demands that we love each other, that we weigh our words carefully, and when appropriate and with the goal of building another person up, we're honest enough to say the truth. That means we get to know people. That means we get to know them well enough to let them speak to us, and it means we get to know them well enough to speak to them with the assurance that we're saying it not out of anger and hate, but out of love. Our call is to live out the unity that is truly a gift in Christ. And that means knowing the people you sit with each week, loving them well enough to hear their truth when they speak it to you, and loving them well enough to cultivate a relationship where you can speak the truth to them, even if you're afraid it might hurt. Our unity in Christ is a tremendous gift. Don't let it be robbed of its power and grace by not speaking the truth in love.